When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk, another Monday Madness. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com along with Doug Lee Maurice. We are down to the nitty gritty of the season, at least the regular season. Ohio State coming off of a 58 31 victory, 59 31 victory, excuse me, over Purdue. And gearing up for two huge games against top 10 teams, Michigan State on Saturday, and obviously at Michigan right after Thanksgiving next week. And we want to get back into a little bit of what we saw from that Purdue game. Doug, as you just texted to our subscribers, 614-350-3315, a lot of data kind of breaking down exactly what happened in this game. Uh, One of our big uh, post-game conversations was how Purdue had performed against George Kaloftis. Big pregame conversation was how it was going to be. Postgame conversation was what exactly happened there. And I think by going back and looking at the game, you have an even better idea of what Hostate did to slow him down and stop him and really make him a non-factor. Yeah, it, it reminded me of what Ohio State did against Indiana linebacker Micah McFadden in that game. And I made a big deal about that and and did a big post with screenshots about that, that when there's like one standout defensive player, Ohio state has really done a good job of targeting that guy, taking that guy out of the game, making sure that guy doesn't ruin your afternoon. And I I thought they were awesome against Karloftis. There's a lot of credit to go around. He flip-flopped constantly. Um, He, he, was back and forth, left side to right side. In the first half, he wound up over Dewan Jones, over right tackle Dewan Jones, 20 times. And he was over Nicholas petit Frere on the left side, 19 times. So he's going back play to play. You don't know where he's going to be. And then I think he got tired of Dewan Jones <laughs> because in the second half, George Karloff was, was over Dewan Jones at right tackle only four times. And he was over Nicholas petit Frere 16 times at left tackle. So for the game, 39 times he was rushing off the right, his right side over the Ohio State left side, and 20 times he was going against Ohio State's right tackle. But it wasn't just the tackles. But it was started with the tackles. And again, Ryan Day talked about some of the things they did. But it started with the idea that NPF and Dewan Jones played great. 
And I had questions about them. I think a lot of people did coming into the game. They had not played as great the previous couple weeks. He did not beat them inside ever. And they constantly took him wide and let CJ Stroud step up in the pocket. And they just mauled him in the run game. Like he, I had him, I counted 61 plays. Again, sometimes I count the penalties because you're blocking the guy. Penalty gets called back. You still had to do work that that play. I had 61 plays for the Ohio state offense before the last final drive that used up the last seven minutes of the game, but it was backups. in at that point it was over. It didn't matter. So I didn't count those. So Karloftis was in for 59 of the 61 snaps before that. So he's playing constantly. And I had him for wins on four out of 59. So he had a play early on where they didn't block him. They, again, like did not block the backside defensive end or, or linebacker, and he tackled Travion Henderson for like a three-yard gain. And it was like, here we go. They're like leaving that guy unblocked. Why are they leaving that guy unblocked? But that was kind of like the only time that happened where it hurt him. They did leave him unblocked on other times, and we'll talk about that very effectively. He had a play where he knifed inside Dewan Jones. Dewan Jones kind of whiffed, and he tackled Mayan Williams like on a second and one hit him right in the hole for a loss of one. That was a good play. He had the play where he drew the hold on Ruckert where on the deep, ball, wiped out the deep ball touchdown. So that's credit to Karloftis. We talked about that after the game. Ryan Day left Ruckert one-on-one. That, that was maybe like the only blocking assignment I didn't like the whole game because most of the game when Ohio State sort of had that extra free offensive lineman, it was the guard next to Karloftis. And I, we'll talk later about all the times where the tackle was doing a good job. And then the, the Paris Johnson would just be like, you know what? Let me go hit George Karloftis at the end of this play just for the heck of it. That was the one play where the guard and the center for Ohio State kind of wound up blocking nobody. And you left Ruckert one-on-one with Karloftis. And it was like, eh, that's not where, where the assignment should be. So I counted that. That's three. And then the fourth was he crashed inside. He beat Cade Stover on an RPO. He just beat him right off the snap. And he was crashing in to tackle Mayan Williams. But CJ pulled it and threw it right over his head outside. And you could see on the film, George Karloff is getting to Mayan Williams, realizing Mayan Williams doesn't have the ball and going, <sighs> like in the middle of the play. Like, well, I beat my blocker. I'm about to tackle this running back for loss. And there's a throw going right over my head. And that was it. And every other play, they blocked him. So it was awesome, Nathan. It was in anything, as you look down the line to Aiden Hutchinson, Michigan, as you look down the line to Georgia, as you look down the line to any, to Wisconsin, to some of these great defenses that Ohio State might face, it's applicable because they handled a dude, but it's less applicable because those, those teams are going to have more than one guy. And they didn't quite do this same thing against Penn State. They didn't quite do this same thing against Nebraska when they sort of had multiple guys to worry about. But against Indiana and Purdue, they faced sort of individual all-Big Ten-level defenders and absolutely nullified them credit all around. I think that's an important thing, and we might as well just almost move right on to that. We'll obviously do our Michigan State preview later in the week, but I think that shifting challenge starts even this week. Michigan State has a, a couple of good defensive ends. Jacob Panasiuk, who was the guy who he opted out last year, and then did he – did he end up missing all last year? Or did he opt back in? I can't remember. He opted but, back in, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but he's he's back and he's got five and a half sacks. Jacob 
Petrowski also has five and a half sacks. You've got two defensive ends up front for Michigan State. They know what they're doing. I wrote today a little bit in uh, for Monday in Madness about the the Michigan combination, which we're going to talk a whole lot more about, I think, going into next week. But Aiden Hutchinson, who everybody already knows about, and uh, David Ojabo, both with 10 sacks. The only power five, I think they might be actually the only division one, well, only, no, I shouldn't say division one, only FBS combination team with a combination of two guys who have even eight sacks and they both have 10 and then obviously Georgia speaks for itself and Wisconsin we'll talk they're a little bit stronger at linebacker maybe than they are defensive end but the point being that the pass rush challenge doesn't get any easier I mean Karloftis individually might be as good as anybody that they were going to have to face but I think what I'm again I'm sure it sounds to people like we're moving the goalposts but okay you pass that test but there's going to be a different test when there's like Karloftis and then maybe somebody who's like 75% of Karloftis lined up on the other end. Now what do you do with both of them? Because it's going to affect how much they can help you. You know, again, with the, with the text that you sent out, maybe you can get into this more, but just how often Ohio State was using not just one person to block Karloftis. A lot of times, it you know, the primary job is being done by one of the tackles, but I mean, everybody from, you know, Donovan Jackson and uh, Mitch Rossi are in there helping block him at at points during this game, which you can always assign, as you're saying, when it's one guy, when it's McFadden, when it's Karloftis, you can assign that extra guy. I'm just intrigued by what Ohio State's going to do when they have to spread that attention out even more these next two weeks. So I did think, so the guys, good plan. It was a good plan. And Ryan Day kind of said that after the game, like we kind of, we made a plan. They made a really good plan. But I think within the plan, you saw a lot of individual execution that if guys wind up more on islands, if it's more about, well, we need everybody doing their job because there's multiple great dudes that we have to handle every play. The fact that they did their job so effectively, I think is encouraging. Now, the thing about something like that with Karloftis is, you know, it wasn't so... Uh, the 59 snaps for him again, it's like, who's, how do they sort of handle him really play to play? Whose job was it? Who did the work? And my breakdown was Nicholas Petit Frere did it for 15 snaps. This is again, it's not exact. I had to interpret some stuff. Dewan Jones for 11. So that's 26 of the 59 is sort of the tackles doing it themselves. Eight times. It was a clear sort of double team. And there were some beautiful double teams. There was one where Dewan blocked him wide and forced him wide again he didn't win inside i said before the game watch for him to win inside he didn't win inside a single time and nicholas petit and dewan jones kept taking him wide forcing him wide there was a play where dewan's forcing him wide and sort of at the end of the rush Karloftis spins off dewan jones and is trying to get back inside to cj stroud but paris johnson has noticed by this point that i don't have anybody to deal with there's no late blitzer And he has turned, he turns and like sort of sprints to the outside. And as George Karloftis turns away from Dewan Jones and might be on the verge of winning, he runs into a Paris Johnson wall and it's like, okay. And there was another play where he, they tried to run a couple stunts. He, he came inside. There was a play where he came inside Nicholas Petit Frere Petit Frere took the guy inside then and Thayer Munford and Luke Whippler together 
both met George Karloftis because they knew exactly where they were supposed to be. Again, Luke kind of didn't have a responsibility as it turned out. And he was right there to help Thayer Munford on a George Karloftis stunt. They passed guys off beautifully. They didn't miss assignments. They picked up late blitzers. So within that, Nathan, I thought there was a lot of encouraging stuff of winning individual one-on-one battles, which you talked about with the offensive line and no missed assignments. I don't think they missed an assignment and that's a huge deal. So again, overall, NPF 15 snaps, Dewan Jones 11, a double team eight. The play itself, taking George Karloftis out eight times. Mitch Rossi four, they ran this four times. Mitch Rossi as an offset tight end would come across the back of the formation. So George Karloftis thinks he's unblocked. His tackle blocks down and he's coming in to crash in. And here comes Mitch Rossi from the other side to boom, stand him up. So that takes a couple, that's a couple plays where Dewan Jones doesn't have to deal with it. He can lean down on a guard and here comes Mitch Rossi. Two for, or four for Mitch Rossi, three for Cade Stover, two for Paris Johnson, two for Thayer Munford, two for John Donovan Jackson as that extra tight end wearing number 41. Sometimes they try to get Karloftis inside. They lined up a guy outside him. Donovan Jackson took care of him on consecutive plays. It's almost like, I, I almost think it was like a purposeful, we want to get Donovan Jackson in to show him film of, hey, look, you blocked an all Big Ten defense event. Let's use that for next year. Let's get you a couple good snaps. Two for Jeremy Ruckert, one for Matthew Jones, and one for Luke Whipple. So you're spreading out who's taking the hits from this physical guy while he's absorbing all of them. So I thought that was great, but I thought the communication, Nathan, which again, all right, now you got to communicate about three guys or four guys or at least two guys, not just one, but it was great. It was great. And they just, again, they slid to the right, the right gaps. They didn't leave stuff open. And you had talked about this before the game, both the Travion Henderson run, touchdown run, and the Garrett Wilson jet sweep touchdown right at Karloftis. And Greg McElroy, again, sometimes you're watching stuff and you think, I'm going to point this out. And it's like, oh, no, they pointed it out during the game. Greg McElroy pointed out during the game, Karloftis tried to knife inside mm-hmm. on the Trivion Henderson touchdown run, totally exposed that B gap. And that's exactly where Trevion Henderson went. They used, I don't know if they knew, like they almost set him up for that, that they didn't. I think the guard took him a little bit out of the play, but it was his aggression that opened the hole that Trevion Henderson cashed in for a 60 yard touchdown. So they, it was, again, it was, it's masterful, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a combination of a great plan and tremendous execution by 10 different guys who were involved in the blocking scheme. And I'm just going to keep talking about one more thing because we can move on. I forgot to count it as I was doing it. I wanted to count how often the, the tight ends went out in routes and how often they stayed in. And I, I forgot to count that, but I did check it on PFF. Um, Jeremy Ruckert, according to PFF, played 50 snaps. He blocked on 31 of them and he ran routes on 19. Mitch Rossi had 26 snaps. He blocked on 21 of them. Cade Stover had 25 snaps. He blocked on 23 of them. Jeremy Ruckett, according to PFF, he's blocking 62% of his snaps. For instance, against Penn State, he played 66 snaps. 34 of them, he was in a route. 32 we blocked. So he blocked on 48% of his snaps in that game. Against Karloftis, it's 62. Tight ends were not there to catch passes against Purdue. So that might also be the case against Michigan. That might also be the case against Wisconsin. It might also be the case against Georgia, which would help Steven's side of the bet. I already won the record bet, but like that 
they can do that when they need to. And it might not be super fun for Jeremy Ruckert, but he's a good blocker. They can rely on that. And if that's what they need to do, that's something they can do because they can put, just put three receivers out in routes who they know can get open. So the tight ends really got down and dirty in that game and also were a huge part of doing what they did. There was a lot of talk about confidence coming out of this game, and I think it probably was when they go back and watch this film, it, it probably will be a, a kind of confidence rejuvenating performance for the whole offensive front, the line and those tight ends talking about factoring. And I think they probably needed that. It's something that they can – used to build on for these next two weeks to say, okay, here's what you guys did one-on-one or here's what you guys did as a team. Now build off of all those things individually, because we are going to have to spread you out a little bit more against maybe these next two. But I also think Ryan day will also use play calling to offset what they're going to see these next two weeks. I think, especially from Michigan in two weeks, because we, we, when he talked about that Ruckert play, it wasn't like, Oh, stupid me thinking, Jeremy Ruckert could block George Karloftis. That wasn't the issue. He said, I, I left him one-on-one and in the combination of a really long developing play that exposed him even longer. So it was Ryan day saying like that. My mistake wasn't thinking George Karloftis or that Jeremy Rucker could stop George Karloftis. I think at this stage of his career, Ruckert can block anybody for some period of time. he's, He's gotten pretty good at that, but I think it's just, on that kind of play, thinking he can do it for like a long period of time, a sustained period of time, because Karloftis is just really strong. So I think that's because Ruckert won the initial block. Right. And then the second block, the continuation of the block was like kind of a draw. And it was, I mean, he didn't grab, it wasn't a super hardcore holding penalty. It was kind of almost like a stalemate and they threw the flag on him. But yeah, to your point, if that's a quick hitter, if that's a quick slant, Ruckert, Ruckert did his job for the first two and a half seconds of that play for sure. Right. So I think that's, that's still just part of the week to week adjustments that this offense is doing. We talked after the game, again, we talked going into the game. I think we thought from both sides of this, that pressure was going to be an important factor um, because we respected Carl Loftus so much because of what we'd seen the previous two weeks from Ohio State's offensive line and just some questions they had to answer. And because of what we thought Ohio State was then going to do to Purdue and uh, pro football focus, again, the, the official box score, as we noted after the game, didn't have anybody for any, certainly no sacks for either team, and then no hurries for either team either. Pro football focus actually gave one hurry to produce safety Marvin Grant. I don't know if that showed up when you were rewatching the game. And then they gave one, one to Tyreek Smith. So one hurry for each team in a game where they threw the ball like 6,000 times. So uh, great analysis by us, but it, it it's, that's how you get a 59 to 31 game. No, and they did a good job also, right? I mean, they rolled the pocket with yeah. CJ. Um, they didn't have a ton of, of slow developing plays and you could see some of the RPO, you know, I was asking RPO stuff during the week. It's like when the, when they're not, when the offensive line's off a little bit, it's like, ah, I, you know, it's like, oh, they're not like the RPOs. They, they did a good job with sort of keeping Purdue off balance with some run patch op- options and stuff. So um, again, I just, my rewatch was watching George Karloff this every snap. So I don't know mm-hmm. what anybody else did, but, but I, I think we, we understand that was a deficient Ohio state offense. And for all I know, that could have come, like you said, towards the end of the game, like when, it, it didn't matter looking at the Ohio state defensive grade. So the one part of the rewatch I did was immediately after the game on Saturday night, going back 
and looking through the Denzel Burke versus David Bell relationship to see if our, our real-time eyes had deceived us. And I had him, I had Burke taking 14 targets against Bell, nine catches, plus the PI. So add that in there, but 76 yards. So on 14, 15 targets, if you include the PI and 91 yards, if you include the PI to the yardage. Yeah. So you're talking about, again, it's like six yards of play. If you tell Ohio State that they're going to hold David Bell to six yards of play going in, I think they're pretty ecstatic about that. This wasn't a shutdown performance. Um, and PFF graded Denzel Burke 65.3, which is okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's better than bad, but it's not anything excellent. But I, I just thought that that was – I think it's, again, as we keep talking about, like, confidence and progressions, I thought this was a big progression for him. I think it's something you'll probably be talking to him – we'll be talking to him about as a third-year player when he's, like, an All-American about how, hey, like, what did it teach you when you went up and, like, kind of held David Bell for the most part in check, held him out of the end zone, held him for half as many yards as he was getting in the games where his presence was the reason they beat Iowa and Michigan State. Yeah, I, I'm sure Denzel Burke and Kerry Combs and Matt Barnes feel good about that. Like whatever, how they grade it, um, I, I'm sure, as you said, from that standpoint, Denzel Burke backed it all up. He backed it all up in a game where David Bell has almost single-handedly won games against top 10 teams this year, and, and Denzel Burke didn't let him do that. So I thought that was real. I'm intrigued to see the champions list from this game. Lathan Ransom was the defensive player of the game. And Pro Football Focus has him as the only guy grading above an 80. Steel Chambers and Zach Harrison both got decent grades for this game, but everybody else is in the, the puke green on down. So defensive backs against a team that, that throws the ball this much, I suppose you're just you're going to give up some stuff. But I, I want to go back and maybe even do a closer rewatch because I'm not sure I had a great – I might feel a little bit better about the defense than I did immediately after the game, just because I think once you're up 35 to seven, you probably start defending differently than you would otherwise. Um, I, 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 there may have even been a little bit of like the defensive equivalent to not wanting to put plays on film offensively. Like why, why, why show them certain things? Um, I do think they're going to, I, but immediately after the game too, Ryan day didn't talk about this defense. He, you know, he said he wanted to see the film, but he certainly wasn't coming out and saying, I thought we did a pretty good job. Ronnie Hickman said it left a lot of room for improvement. So the defensive guys that we talked to, you know, Bryson Shaw was very much like, I really blew that play um, on one of the ones that they gave up something big over the top. So this was not a team that seemed enthused by their defensive performance. And I'm going to be curious when we talk to them on Tuesday to get sort of a second opinion from themselves on exactly what happened there because I still am suspicious of what happens when they place a team like they're about to face at Michigan state, which is one that you have to respect more completely on offense. Yeah, no, I I agree. There's nothing. I didn't dive in on the defense, but I think the questions remain. I think the questions remain again, but again, credit to stopping the guy that you were most worried about David Bell's PFF grade against Ohio state, 69.9. For comparison's sake, against Michigan State, he graded at 80. Against Iowa, he graded at 85. Those were the games where, I mean, like, he was unstoppable. And, and you know, against Ohio State, they stopped him. So I think that's um, the comparison stuff, again, is I think where you can really find 
some answers to things. And I, just to double back real quickly, kind of the same thing with George Karloftis. He graded in the 60s. He graded at 68 against Ohio State. In some previous games this year, he graded 79 against Nebraska, 79 against Iowa, 83 against Illinois. And his pressures, George Karloftis, again, to your point, the only person for Purdue who was credited with the pressure by PFF was that safety. George Karloftis, his pressures this season by game. Oregon State 7, UConn 4, Notre Dame 4, Illinois 1, Minnesota 2, Iowa 12, Wisconsin 2, Nebraska 8, Michigan State 3, Ohio State Zero. So and I would two mediocre grades for Bell and Karloftis, which is proof that Ohio State did a good job. And that, that Iowa game was the one that really had the draft people like salivating about Karloftis. I think Pro Football Focus, that was like the first time in the whole time that they've been grading that anybody has had even 10 pressures in a game against an Iowa offensive line and he had 12. So that was the one that, that sort of set people off. And I, I don't know. I, I actually, you know, even though we were off on certain things like me picking, Purdue to have a bunch of sacks or, um, you know, us thinking that those guys were going to be guys who changed the game. And that's why we were maybe picking uh, Purdue with the points or whatever for this game. But I think the analysis was actually ended up being correct. And it was just that Ohio State stepped up and performed against both of those guys. Yeah. And my outrageous prediction was Garrett Wilson go nuts. And that finally was right. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> if you say enough, it's like if I just if I could just keep picking a Mecca to return a kickoff, I could just say yeah. it every game. Still seems like he's really close. I'm gonna I'm gonna seem super smart if it happens in like the national championship game or something. But, yeah. Um we'll save that clip for then. But uh we're gonna come back and get into the money madness categories here on Buckeye Talk. Story of the week. I mean, it's a huge game. I don't know what to say. It's 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 two top 10 games potentially the next two weeks, as long as Michigan also takes care of its business at Maryland. But first up is Michigan State at Ohio Stadium at noon on Saturday. And I remember in 2019, I thought we looked at that schedule at the start of the year and we were like, they got to play Penn State and Michigan back to back. Boy, that's like a really tough way to have to end the season. And I don't think anybody said that at the start of this year. But then now look at what they've ended up having to do like, you know, Purdue um, was what it was and offensively certainly was, is, is a challenge, but then Michigan state and Michigan have really proven themselves, I think, to be worthy of where they're ranked this year. And this is a, a, a tough assignment to do back to back. And to me, it's just more about, I think this game is going to tell us more about how a house, how far Ohio state has come defensively than any other game, because they have not faced a team that can run the ball like this and a player like Kenneth Walker since Oregon. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be a little like, I think Peyton Thorne is the Michigan state quarterback is probably in the same type of category as Aiden O'Connell from Purdue and Sean Clifford of Penn state, except he's has a Heisman trophy candidate running back in the backfield and Purdue and Penn state can't run it at all. And I think all three of those guys are like more consistent than a guy like Adrian Martinez and Indiana didn't have a quarterback at all. And Talia Tonga-Vailoa just got completely taken out of the game and Rutgers doesn't have anybody. So like that balance, I think is, is the thing that we haven't seen that Tulsa threw the ball over the place. Didn't really have any balance though. Um, And Oregon, you know, did what it did with Anthony Brown, making a couple plays that needed to be made and a huge game from CJ Verdell. So 
you watch that play from the Michigan State Mission game a couple weeks ago where Kenneth Walker runs into the line, gets stopped, and then bounces outside. And it's like, okay, like th- they're going to have to tackle. Like Ohio State's going to have to tackle in this game. And on the back end, as much as we've talked about Steel Chambers, like this is the Steel Chambers game, I think, because he played a ton. He was out there. We can check the snaps on that. He was out there the whole all the time on Saturday. He's now their number one linebacker. But the back seven is going to have to tackle because there are going to be times when you think you stop Kenneth Walker at the point of attack and you're not, and then he's going to bounce. And then what are you going to do? So I do think that is real. And then the other side of this, that I thought we could have a little mini conversation about this wedged into one of the categories, Nathan is we're not. So I said, I was going to start doing these Tuesday little mini podcasts where we normally don't have a podcast, do these little rants. I did one two weeks ago. I didn't have time to do one last week. This week, we're going to actually drop an extra bonus podcast on Tuesday because Steven and I are going to talk about the basketball team, and we didn't want to take away from football to do that. So if you want to hear about Ohio State basketball, we're going to do like a full basketball podcast for Tuesday. But the rant that I've had loaded that I'm probably not going to get to do and I want to talk about is looking at the football outsiders efficiency ratings for defense. These are, as of now, where, where Big Ten teams are ranked in this defense, defensive efficiency metric. In the country, Wisconsin is two, Iowa's three, Penn State's seven, Michigan's 11, Nebraska's 12, Ohio State's 17, Purdue is 19, Michigan State's 20, Minnesota's 22. So that's nine of the 22 best defenses in the, big, in the country are in the Big Ten. So Michigan State is the 20th ranked defense coming into this game, but they're the eighth best defense in the Big Ten. Are all these Big Ten defenses actually good, or is this a function of Big Ten offenses being bad? Because I'm skeptical, and this is a similar conversation that we have had many times over, over the years. I'm a little skeptical about, like, I think the good ones are really good, I think Wisconsin's actually good. I've talked about how I think Penn State's actually good. Nebraska has done some stuff against people. So like Michigan at number 11, that I'll believe because I think Aiden Hutchinson, John Ross, Daxton Hill, three levels, Ajabo, like multiple dudes, right? The idea that Michigan is the 11th best defense in the country, I might buy. The idea that Michigan State is the 20th best defense in the country, I think some of these second tier highly ranked big 10 defenses are a fun- more a function of playing incompetent offenses. So that's what's on my mind. And that's a difference to me of Ohio state play in Michigan state and Ohio state play in Michigan, even though those defenses are ranked fairly closely. I think I'm looking at things very much the same way. When you said, is it, are the defenses actually good or is it just playing big 10 offenses? I think the answer is yes. And I think it depends on which of those teams you're talking about, because I was looking, the one that I like is the football outsiders metrics and they have Wisconsin as so it, but it's, you have to look at the scores kind of within the score, within the rankings sometimes to get, I think where the tiers really are. Georgia is by far the best defense in the country by like, I think everybody's metrics and they, they give an efficiency score of Georgia to Georgia of 1.93. This is football outsiders. Wisconsin's number two, but at 1.5. And as I give you these numbers, that'll, that will, the, the tiers will become, I think, a little bit more 
um, obvious. And then Iowa and Oklahoma State are tied right behind that with 1.16. But again, still a big dip down to there. And then you, that's where you get into that category of Iowa, Penn State, and those two are really almost kind of by themselves. And then there's another drop down to the Michigan-Purdue level. And then another drop down to where you start talking about Michigan State and before you start in Ohio State, kind of in the same. And that was going into last week. So Purdue will drop, obviously, because Ohio State uh, opened up a can on them. But that's kind of so I I think it's a matter of, yes, I think all these teams are to some extent solid because you are comparing everybody in the country. After 10 weeks, things do start to normalize a little bit. But I think there's only a couple of teams that are really out there off kind of by themselves. And it's, it's intriguing to me that they keep putting Wisconsin in that same Georgia conversation. I, I don't know that I believe still that Wisconsin has the offense to go with it. That's really going to challenge whoever they might play. And especially Ohio state for the big 10 in a big 10 championship game. But I am intrigued more and more by Michigan, just because I know Michigan, even though it's still somewhat one dimensional, can put a pretty efficient offense next to this pretty solid defense. But Michigan State intrigues me, again, because of what I was saying about the running game before, because the, the uh, Ohio State leads the Big Ten in rushing per uh, like r- yards per attempt. They're somewhere right around six. And then the next three teams behind them, in, uh, and I think it's in this order, Michigan State, Michigan, and Wisconsin in yards per attempt. And that's probably the next three teams they're going to have to play. After a season that's been full of teams that can't run the ball, except for the one that beat them. And I wonder, like we've talked about, Kenneth Walker has had some grinded out games this year where it's like he put up yards, but it was like didn't even average four yards a carry. And it's like, I, so I was like, okay, I don't know. Is he going to win? And then he went, and then he, then he was special against Michigan. So the thing that I wonder about with this Ohio State defense, and again, we can, we'll dive into this more. I, I need to watch some more Kenneth Walker film and that kind of thing as we get to the Friday preview show is, is Ohio State's defense the kind of defense where a back like Walker is more likely to have a grinded out game or does he have an opportunity to be special in this game? Because maybe Ohio State doesn't have Ryan Shazier, Chase Young, Darren Lee, Von Bell dudes flying around to bring this guy down. And if Kenneth Walker the third has a little bit of a rise to the moment kind of thing in him, right? That this is my, you know, he showed it against Michigan. He rose to the moment against, again, a Michigan defense that we think is real. If he rises to that moment and the Ohio State defense is just good, decent, but not great, not filled with playmakers, I don't know if this is a chance for him to go crazy. And if he goes crazy, what does that mean? And that's, that's where I think this game probably hinges. Like, does he have to run for 200 yards for Michigan State to win? Maybe. But could he run for 200 yards? Maybe. Like, that's where I am on Monday. I wanted to get maybe just a, a quick scattering report on him for you. Again, we'll talk about him more later in the week when we do the game preview. But you've, through the work you do with the college football podcast each week and by the way if you guys aren't listening to that i highly recommend it it's not ohio state centered but ohio state's obviously involved because they're in the middle of the the playoff conversation but we do a lot of that here and then 
Doug and Shahan do a great job of breaking that down kind of on the, at the national level. So my, from the times that I've seen him, I, I'm trying to think of a comparison that we can give Ohio State fans. And I'm, to me, it's more like a Trey Sermon situation than a J.K. Dobbins situation. Do you think that's fair? Or do you think he has even – is he more like Does he Is he closer to being that level of back? See, the, the thing – Trey Sermon is not a great – Not in not terms something. of what he did for the season. I'm just talking about like his abilities as a running back. Yeah, I know. My preseason skepticism of Trey Sermon last year, which looked foolish when he was karate kicking people in the Big Ten championship game, he got – the Niners traded up for him in the third round that he can't get on the field. And they've had a bunch of running back injuries and they're playing like undrafted free agents ahead of him. And he's inactive. Like he's, he's nothing right now in the NFL for a team that like needs running backs. So it, I, I don't like Ohio state had a really good offensive line last year. I don't have a sense right now of how good Michigan state's offensive line is. I need to watch that. I think this might be a guy who is getting some stuff on his own and even like i was skeptical sometimes of jonathan taylor which does not look great because jonathan taylor is tearing it up in the nfl but sometimes it's like well okay most wisconsin running backs you put behind wisconsin lines look pretty good i i don't know if maybe kenneth walker's getting a little more on his own and that he is carrying a huge load and as much as we've talked about limiting trying to limit trayvon henderson's carries a little bit listen this guy's a veteran so you don't have to do it he had seven carries against Youngstown State in week two in that blowout. Otherwise, his carries this year, 23, 27, 19, 24, 29, 23, 23, 22, 30. So he was 30 for 143 against Maryland with two scores. 4.8 yard average. Like, not spectacular, but they're going to hand this guy the ball four times every drop. Like, he's going to have the ball constantly. I yeah. think he might carry it 38 times against Ohio state. Cause like, what are you waiting for? So I think he gets some stuff on his own because he is doing it for a team that is a good solid team, but I don't know that they're filled with first round offensive linemen, the way Wisconsin sometimes is the way Ohio state sometimes is. And you look back on Trey Sermon and it's like, well, you know, Munford and Petit Frere and Wyatt Davis and Josh Myers. And, you know, you got some stuff done and he did take advantage of it at the second level, but now we're sort of seeing, I think he's pretty good. I think he's better than Trey Sermon. And I don't think he's JK because I don't think he's going to be a high second round pick in the NFL. Um, and he's not, I don't think he's Travion. I mean, he's not Travion. Travion's better. So it's right. one of those things. It's like, Oh, is Kenneth Walker going to win the Heisman? It's like, I don't know. He's not the best running back in his conference. So, but I think he's, I think he's pretty real. So I think he has a chance to be a problem for Ohio state. Walk the line. This opened at minus 18 for Ohio state, Ohio state favored by 18 per circus sports. This is weird. It, it, it so it opened at 18 and the, and the over under was 72.5 which as, as I told our texters at the time, like if that holds, it would be the highest over under total for any Ohio state game this year. 71.5 is the highest at kickoff for the Maryland game. But then it pretty quickly, that part of it plummeted right now. The, the last I saw this morning, Ohio state is favored by 19. And then that over under is at 66.5. I almost thought that those would go in the other direction. Like I could see this being, I mean, I thought it would maybe be a high scoring game with, with a, a smaller spread than that. Although I think people are probably influenced by the fact that Purdue beat Michigan state and Ohio state just 
walloped Purdue pretty good. So I think the, you know, the public money is going to look at that correlation and that might be why this line is still where it is. I feel unqualified to talk about Ohio state lines this year. I mean, I yeah. just don't, we're terrible. We're terrible. Like the, the, I predicted 38 30 for the Purdue game. I was right about Purdue four and 30, right? That, that was right. But Ohio state could have scored 70 if they wanted to. So it's like, well, if you have an offense that you think can score 70, it's like, how do you, what's the over under a hundred? You think the score of this Michigan state game is going to be 70 to 30. So it's like, what would you bet? It's like, uh, we'll set the over under at a hundred and it's Ohio state minus 40. It's like, I can see that. So, but on the other hand, it's like, it's a top 10 matchup and, and Ohio state's in the 20 point favorite range again in a world where they were favored by 15 over Rutgers. I can't. And where they didn't cover a 15 point spread at Nebraska, but you look at Michigan state, they're 40th in the nation in points per game surrendered 22.5. You know, you look at a team like Michigan, they're fourth in the nation at 16.1. So, you know, you're giving up 22.5 to Northwestern and Maryland and Nebraska and Rutgers. It's like, what are you going to give up to Ohio state 70? So I guess this sounds right to me. It feels like an over, right? I mean, maybe that's where people can, can feel the greatest sense of, of any kind of this is a good bet feel with Ohio State right now is take some overs because that got over quick last week, right? All their over-unders oh, yeah. had been in the mid-60s, and that was over. They got to over like at halftime practically, if not for real. Yeah, no, it, it very quickly pushed to the over. So at least you got that right. This past week, uh, Stephen and I both missed on that and the spread, but at least you got the the over under right. I mean, the Michigan State Michigan game, both those teams were in the 30s when they played each other. So I just this seems like a high scoring game. Now, is it possible that it could be like 48 to 17 Ohio State? Like I don't, that wouldn't shock anybody, right? And that would then both I would brandy. be shocked if Ohio State holds Kenneth Walker and that offense to 17. That would be a very that would be a significant accomplishment to me if they hold this Michigan State Maybe. offense under 20, actually. I'd be moderately surprised by that. And the thing that I keep trying to remind people of with the Purdue game is, you know, um, the, the bad punt that sets Ohio State up, the fumble on the kickoff return that was, like, unusual. It wasn't like a forced fumble, really, by the defense or even really by the special teams. It was a mistake by Purdue. The, the dumb, like... Uh, putting in the backup quarterback and then the guys not knowing that they were supposed to take a hand up. That also wasn't a forced fumble by the house state defense. Right. So Purdue was giving them opportunities. So that, that swings how that score went too. So just something to keep in mind as you're evaluating this. And the fear factor is interesting to me because we talked all last week about Purdue and what kind of a little annoying nemesis they've been for Ohio state over the years. And I'm, I'm starting to think, are we out of sight, out of mind on how much of a nemesis Michigan state was under Mark D'Antonio, and does it feel like it could be trending back in that direction? It's too early to say that, but I think this game helps establish whether that could be a relationship, assuming Mel Tucker stays at Michigan State for the next few years. So we talked about the Purdue curse on the preview show on Friday, but we came to the conclusion that that Ohio State-Purdue matchup really did not fit the previous Ohio State-Purdue matchups that gave Ohio State trouble. Prime, in part because, A, it wasn't in West Lafayette, which all four losses for Ohio State had been, and B, because Purdue was too good. They weren't sneaking up on anybody. Mm-hmm. So we kind of dispelled that formula. I think the Michigan State thing 
the formula where you've seen Michigan State beat Ohio State, that is actually very much in play. <laughs> like that, I think a lot of when a, what what Michigan State did to Ohio State in 2013 and then 2015, I think that is actually a decent fit for what this is. Because one of those games was in Ohio State and one was on a neutral field. You don't go to nobody's scared to go into East Lansing, right? That's not some huge home field advantage. So that's not part of it. I I, I don't think. There's no part of this where I think, oh, this is going to be hard for Michigan State to come in and overcome something in Columbus. I think that's on the table. And then you've got the same type of head coach, I think, who is a defensive-minded head coach, who is a hard, tough-nosed head coach. I think there's a lot of Mark D'Antonio's style in Mel Tucker that coached together at Ohio State. And you start like looking around, listen, there were times where Michigan state like had that no fly zone defense and stuff. And they had some really good dudes, right? They had some really good players, but Kenneth Walker's a good player. Peyton Thorne's pretty competent. The receivers are pretty okay. I, I actually do think this is more of a match for the historical Michigan state nemesis than Purdue was a match for the historical Purdue nemesis. So I was thinking that just based on that history, based on the fact that Michigan State has done some things this year based on Kenneth Walker, I'm saying like 6.5, 6, 6.5. This is the one I would would say again. There's a lot of – there's some football stuff at play with Michigan, for real, right? Son Haskins is pretty good. They're not explosive offensively, but they have their plan of attack. And then on defense, they have some players. So there's some football stuff there. I just don't know if Michigan can get out of its own head for that game. I just, I don't know what, like what it would look like for Michigan to be at its best in that Ohio state Michigan game, almost again, because it's too real. Like Michigan is good. Michigan's good. And they did it against Penn state. The one of the, I mean, the biggest result from the weekend is that Michigan beat Penn state Yeah, on the road. Cause that left all that on the table. It looked like they were going to, okay, well, here they go. They blow that game. Ohio State's going to clinch the Big Ten championship even before we get to Ohio State Michigan week. Uh, and no, no, no. Michigan's still right there. So that really mattered for the the sort of the aura around these last two games. But I think there's a lot of psychological stuff that's still against Michigan. I think there's some psychological stuff for Michigan State because there is a little bit of history, but Tucker already has them geared up in a way that are already overachieving. They have nothing to lose. They can lean on Walker. They can let Walker carry the ball on half their plays, you know? And it's like, well, what's going to happen? It's like, I don't know. Half the time, the ball's going to be in the hands of a Heisman candidate. It's like, okay, well, that's not usually what happens for Ohio State. Now, again, I think sometimes in the past, if you do that, Wisconsin's tried to do that, and Wisconsin's never had any luck against Ohio State long-term because that's not enough. So it's like, okay, you can't just run it. But like, what else? It's like, okay, then the what else is a little bit of Peyton Thorne with a couple of decent receivers. And then the what else is Mel Tucker, I think. Like Mel maybe having a little more ready for this than Paul Christ has had in recent memory. So like, I, I would put it up there too. I would, I would put it up there too. Most of it based on football and some of it based on former Ohio State assistant, Cleveland guy, bringing an overachieving team into Columbus with nothing to lose. As much as I respect Kenneth Walker also, I think it's going to depend on, and again, we'll get into all this stuff more with the game preview, but what's Michigan state's plan of attack. 
what does their offensive coordinator come in and do? I think it's, is it Jay Johnson? That's their offensive coordinator now. Who's a guy no that idea. I'm not, not familiar with because it wasn't just that Oregon had great running backs and that's how they beat Ohio state. It was Joe Moorhead coming in and scheming and attacking kind of the, the, the soft underbelly a little bit. And the, so what does Ohio state done to shore up that underbelly? firm up the underbelly is that what you say if it was a soft underbelly do you have to can you firm up your underbelly i can't i've been trying for I've been, 40 no. years <laughs> uh so um has that happened and then where where can michigan state exploit it from a from a play calling standpoint i think those are are still out there for me and i i don't have a good read on that i think we we went eyes wide open going in on joe moorhead and the fact that there may be something there that he was going to maybe be a factor in that game. I don't have that same read on Michigan State. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. And by the way, that Purdue, I think that if you look back on that weird Purdue snap, the guy was actually open and Aiden O'Connell like didn't throw it to him because the whole thing with that weird snap is they had the tight end snap it. And they were talking about that during the game. The tight end snapped it, but he's the last guy on the end of the line. So he's eligible. Right. So he does that weird backhand toss snap and then right, runs right down the seam down the middle of the field and Ohio State actually kind of let him go, and O'Connell got off the throat too quick and dumped it off. But it actually, the trick—I think the trick actually worked—and the quarterback didn't stick stick with it. They tried a few little wrinkles. There was a a fake flea flicker, which is one of the things that I told people mm-hmm. to like watch out for. That they'll they'll turn to pitch the flea flicker and then just keep it and run. And they tried another sort of little hook and lateral kind of thing, but it was was sort of half assed. Like it wasn't really. But once you're down thirty five to seven, then okay, right. You spring an 80-some-yard play, for you're still down 35 to 14 now or whatever. So that that, that kind of, I think, spoiled the element of surprise a little bit there. We're going to take one more break. We're going to come back and talk about kind of the national landscape and where Hosty fits in that here on Buckeye Talk. Ballot boxing is the next segment. That's where Doug gets to make fun of my AP ballot if he so chooses. But really, we always use this as a springboard in to just kind of talk about what happened over the weekend and what it means for Ohio State. Ohio State moved up to number five in the AP poll because Oklahoma lost and dropped out of the top 10. And basically, everybody just moved up one. And Alabama flipped Cincinnati to take over the number two spot. But Ohio State is 12 points behind Oregon for the fourth for number four, they were 14 points behind Oregon last week. So all of those results did chip into the um, insistence on the consensus of the AP poll to keep putting the ducks ahead of Ohio state. Are you embarrassed to be part of such a bunch of spineless sheep that AP voters are? They, they finally moved Alabama ahead of Cincinnati off, off Alabama's win over New Mexico state because they were too tired of having the committee come out that have Alabama ahead of Cincinnati when the poll actually correctly has Cincinnati ahead of Alabama. It was one of the things the poll was doing right. And then everybody was like, oh, the committee's doing the up. Embarrassing. For real. Sports writers are awful. I like journalism. Journalists are too many, too many, not all, too many, too many of these 59 are spineless sheep, 63, spineless. They don't even know what they think. They're amoebas. They're just, you you put them on a counter and they have no shape to them at all. It's embarrassing, Nathan. I I was part of it. 
and I yelled at him then. For real. You guys suck. And, okay. and, and, but now I will say, if you don't know what you think beyond like number 14, 15, 16, I hear that. Because often I don't really like with great confidence know what I think about the mediocrity that's sort of rising to the top each week that is ranked from like 16 on down. From BYU through UTSA to Pitt, who is eight and two, but has beaten like I think literally nobody. Teams like that, like whatever order, don't send me texts and tweets about the fact that Houston shouldn't be number 23 or whatever. Like, I don't care. Like it's, it's a mess down there, but I think you have to know what you're doing one through 10 and you have to be able to defend it to some extent. I wanted to ask you, this isn't a huge part of why I vote the way I do. We don't have a lot of data as to which of these other national powers right now would actually stand up to Georgia. Should the way Cincinnati played last year in a bowl game against Georgia be any sort of morsel in how people are voting right now? Because Cincinnati got on a neutral field with Georgia last year, semi-neutral at least, and played them toe-to-toe. They were right there with them. And Cincinnati's current schedule is unimpressive. The performance has been pretty good. But other than the Notre Dame game, which you could still argue now that Notre, I mean, Notre Dame's like a consensus top 10 team. They're as high as I think like six or seven in the AP poll right now. So going on the road and winning that game is as good a win as just about anybody has right now. This should count for something. But should does if you were voting, would that be lingering in your mind at all this year? You shouldn't use past years to vote, but it would gird your belief in Cincinnati that whether it's subconsciously or consciously, it chips away at any idea of like, oh, well, Cincinnati's a fraud. They're flashing the pan, whatever. It's like, just like, because you don't think that against, Alabama hasn't beaten anybody. But you don't think that against about Alabama. Well, why don't you think that again about Alabama? Well, who they really beat, that's impressive. Who they really beat. Well, but you don't do that because they're Alabama. There's enough. So whether you don't consciously say, well, I have Bama here because they did, they won the national championship last year. But they've they have an established feeling about them, and mm-hmm. I think that should that Cincinnati has that, and I think that should affect them, and it should, for instance, keep you from dropping them out of the number two slot where you've been voting them all year because you're embarrassed that the committee disagrees with you, little voter. I'm sorry, little voter. I'm sorry. Did somebody send you a nasty tweet? Did Birmingham Bob send you a nasty tweet, little voter? We'll make it all better, little voter. Get rid of it. No, don't get rid of it. We need the AP poll early on because it provides historical context for stuff. Just take everybody who votes. Take everybody who switched their vote on Alabama and Cincinnati this week. Take them out into a field. And uh, what can I say? I don't want to say something that actually would hurt them. Shine a spotlight on them and say mean things about them. That's all. Little voter, did your feelings get hurt a little? It's embarrassing. You're adults. You're adults. You cover sports for a living. Handle it. Believe in something, you spineless amoebas. By the way, shine a spotlight on them and say mean things about them. Also a good slogan for Buckeye Talk. Because that's kind of what we do every day. (laughs) I still have Cincinnati number two. Like I said, I mean... 
That went at Notre Dame is as good. <laughs> what as... if after all that you were like, uh, this week I actually moved Alabama ahead of Cincinnati? I didn't, but I have Alabama number three, which is probably higher than than you would put them also. Uh, but there's just, I mean, I don't, it's it's hard. It, it really is, I think, hard to separate Alabama, Oregon, Ohio State. Um, Oklahoma State's played pretty well and is coming up behind that group. Michigan State, Michigan. I, I'm pretty happy with the way I've, I've been ranking those teams. But I'm, I'm, I, I, the Cincinnati thing is going to get interesting because they're up to number five in the playoff rankings and they're poised right there. If something goes wrong ahead of them, which it almost certainly will either Alabama loses to Georgia or Oregon doesn't keep like sneaking by the teams that it's sneaking by, or I mean, Ohio state's not invulnerable to something happening. Uh, the interesting thing is, or is Oklahoma losing? Because I think that had kind of been looming out there that like, well, if Oklahoma goes on a run and and wins out, are they going to get enough impressive wins? Because like beating Baylor would have impressed the committee on the road. So like, would they have gotten enough wins that it would have jumped Cincinnati? And now you've taken that off the table. They definitely would have jumped Cincinnati. There's no way the committee would have would have put an undefeated Cincinnati over an, over an undefeated Power Five champ but they can do it over a one loss power five champ. So that's a huge one for Cincinnati for sure. Anything else from the national stage that you want to touch on? Like I said, you've got the college football playoff. Yeah. I can't give away the good cast. Go listen to the playoff pod. We actually changed the name just so people know, changed it to the college football survivor show. Oh, now, now let me ask you why, why would a show change its name from the college football playoff show? to the college football survivor show out of the blue in the middle of a season. Perhaps because a it, lawyer told you to <laughs> suggested by another entity that has the name college uh, football playoff that perhaps they weren't in love with our name. Was that perhaps suggested? Perhaps? You mean the college football playoff itself was not excited to hear that there was like an hour or three hours of podcasting a week dedicated to little Dougie coming on the air and just ripping them and telling everybody how stupid they are for the whimsical decisions that they make. I'm it's, it's not, it's, it's hard because the name of the thing is the description of the thing, right? It's not the Super Bowl, right? When you do the commercials for the Super Bowl, it's like, we're not an official Super Bowl sponsor. So we can't say Super Bowl. We have to call it the big game. Yeah. But it's like the college football and like the World Series. It's not a it's like, oh, what's that thing? It'd be like if the World Series was called the baseball postseason championship. It's like because that's what it is. The name of it is the World Series. What it is is the baseball postseason championship. But college football named its thing the description of the thing. So I would say that our name we were not called something off the name of something. We were calling it based off the description of the thing, except they're the same thing. So now we're the college football survivor show. And you know, who's the number one survivor me I've been doing this for 17 years. Come get me. No, I don't really mean that. Nobody cares about it, but we're going to do the same stuff. Georgia, Ohio state, Cincinnati, Bama, same stuff. I think lawyers have once again have been proven to be the number one survivor. They're going to outlast us all. They have. Uh, by the way, I still had Michigan State above Michigan in my ballot, and so did the consensus of the AP voters. So they were not swayed by the committee on that one. Good. 
They'll will be they will be next. Well, I, next week if Michigan State has a loss, it's going to yeah. come to a head either way. Either Michigan State will have an awesome win over Ohio State, and Michigan State will definitely be ahead of Michigan, or Michigan will take State will second loss. But so they congratulations on not giving in on one thing at least, you spineless amoebas. One thing I want to touch on real quick: um, Would Ohio State, if this was a twelve-team playoff, already in effect this year? Would Ohio State have clinched a berth by beating Purdue last week? Could they then have taken losses to both Michigan State and Michigan and still gotten into a 12-team playoff, considering where those teams are ranked now? Uh, no, because then I think you start getting in a world where it's like if you were going to take like three Big Ten teams, it might be like Michigan, Michigan State, and Wisconsin. Or, you know, like I, I, you'd be dicey. You'd be dicey. And um, I don't know that we're going to have a ton of three-loss teams. In the playoff, even in a 12-team world, because you're going to have like six automatics and then the other six wild cards. Like you might have to get some automatics with with three losses, right? If the ACC champ or the Pac-12 champ or the yeah. highest non-power five champ, they kind of stink. They might have three losses, but I'm not sure we're going to have a ton of wild card three loss teams. Now, if they are going to get in, it will be the Blue Bloods, right? It'll be like three-loss Alabama, three-loss Ohio State will get in ahead of three-loss Oklahoma State. But um, And I do hope we just wind up in a playoff world where there's enough incentive to the seeding and the home games and the buys, something where being the 10 seed is not the same as being the three seed. So that I, don't, I hope we don't get to a point where it's like Ohio State's like, ah, I don't, it doesn't matter if we lose Michigan State. Who cares? We're in no matter what. I hope, I hope it matters you're playing for something one way or the other. Yeah. I think if they beat Michigan state, that would clinch a 12 team playoff berth for sure. Because then you, then you also have like what they don't have really still for the resume right now, which is like a, a really impressive ranked victory. I know Purdue was ranked yeah. in the thing last week, but I'm talking about like top 10 level. Um, you would then have that on your resume for Ohio state. And then the Michigan loss is not going to knock you out of the top 12. Right. Or the top 10, probably even. No, I agree with that, especially in a world where, like, if you lose to Michigan, Michigan goes to the Big Ten championship game. Now you can't go and right. lose again in the Big Ten championship game. So right. you would just be 10 and 2 Ohio State with making its case that you probably would be the 11 seed or something. Right. With losses only to like top 10 or top five teams and the win over Michigan State. Like, I think you would definitely right. get in so that people can decide whether they think that like diminishes. But I think the way Ohio state treats the Michigan game wouldn't change. And no, I think the way no, Ohio State don't even treating that. it. So no. again, there's no chance that it would change the Michigan minor change other games. Yes. It would not change Ohio state. Michigan. I agree. That's going to wrap up Monday madness. Stick around uh, for again, for that bonus Tuesday episode, we've been skipping Tuesdays, but there will be a bonus Tuesday episode for those of you who want to hear Steven and Doug talk about, Ohio State basketball and the start that they are off to this year. For Doug Lame Reese, I'm Nathan Baird. That was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>